Sydney Opera House's Popular House Stories podcast returns with four new episodes unearthing untold stories from behind the scenes of the world-famous sales. Explore the iconic building's transformation for the 21st century, delve into captivating tales about the artists and performances on our stages, and much, much more. Start listening now at sydneyoperahouse.com slash digital slash podcasts or on your favourite podcast platform. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. Indigenous women, white feminism and power, colonial violence and self-determination. What are the obstacles and pathways to a new future led by First Nations women? Professor Aileen Morton Robinson discusses her seminal work, Talking Up to the White Woman, Indigenous Women and Feminism, an essential book demonstrating how white feminists benefit from colonialism and the unjust structure between white society and Indigenous society. Chelsea Wadigo and Amy McGuire represent a new generation of strong, visionary voices exploring what living as a First Nations woman is like when every day is yet another day in the colony. Hosted by Larissa Behrendt, recorded live at the Sydney Opera House for All About Women 2022. Well, thank you so much. I think that was for you more than me, Aunt. <laughs> um, I'm Larissa Behrendt, and welcome uh, to the first part of this session, First Nations Women Look to the Future, where it's my great privilege to be in conversation with distinguished Professor Aileen Morton Robinson. Um, I'm, I'm really honoured to be the co-curator of this year's All About Women Festival, and I was very keen to honour the women who have paved the way, and of course, distinguished professor, who I also call distinguished aunt, is one of those people. I'm going to allow um, our distinguished professor to talk a bit about her positioning and uh, her standpoint at the beginning of our discussion, but I just wanted to, by way of introduction, also acknowledge that um, she was the first Indigenous distinguished professor in Australia, so really has paved the way in academia, and as director of the Australian Research Council's uh, National Indigenous Research and Knowledge Network, or NIRICAN, was also um, a huge mentor in the sector. Uh, she's one of the country's leading intellectuals and one of the most influential First Nations scholars. She's been a long-time uh, advocate for Indigenous rights, worked at the coalface for many years, and has paved the way for not just a new generation of Indigenous scholars, but a new generation of Indigenous ad advocates and activists. Of course, one of the things we're going to focus on today is her groundbreaking book, Talking Up to the White Woman, which has just reached its 20th anniversary. And having read it through a couple of times as it's been reissued, I've got to say it's as important today as it was back then and speaks to the professor's intellect in terms of the thoughts that she put together all those years ago. They turned out to be quite prescient. So distinguished Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson, welcome to All About Women. Thank you. 
Now, as we know, with, with uh, First Nations people, we don't ask how you're going, we ask who you are and where you're from. And I thought in that tradition, I would give you a chance to, um, uh, using those traditional kinship ideas of placing yourself in the world and in relation to the rest of us, uh, in your own words, can you tell us where you're from and what have been your influences? Okay. Um, thank you, everyone, for coming, for starters, um, for COVID. But I want to begin by really acknowledging the sovereignty of the Gadigal people, uh, which continues, and the continuing sovereignty of all the uh, Indigenous titters that are in the audience today. I am uh, a Gulumpu woman from uh, Kwantamooka. Um, my, um, my bloodline to country is um, Gurunpul, uh, and my, uh, through the women, I also have bloodline to Yagra, which is uh, the south side of the Brisbane River, Turrbal in the north, and further in the north to Gubby Gubby. So, southeast Queensland um, is where the Guris are, where Guris. Um, and uh, I, um, so, so I have bloodlines there, but my primary area of where I grew up was. Uh, on Manjeriba, um, Stradbroke, and I consider that to have been a very um, fortunate thing, given that the majority of Indigenous people didn't grow up on country. I was very, very lucky. Um, so who inspires me? It's really my grandparents uh, who raised me, and uh, the women of Kwantamooka, um, who are... Uh, amazing women, and I've sort of done research on their. Um, right, I, you know, it'll be one of the books that comes out after I leave academia, because then I'll have time to write it. Um, but it, it'll be about um, the way in which they were very formidable and um, fought on uh, the Kippa, uh, which is like known as the Bora elsewhere. But they were known all throughout uh, Southeast Queensland as being warrior women. Um, and then even in the recordings of um, uh, explorers, they talk about don't trust them because we were the, um, the scouts, so the women would go out and um, look at where they were, and then the next day the men had hit and the women had joined the fight. So, you know, coming from a very um, warrior culture, uh, you know, doesn't sort of situate you really well for the world. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, so I uh, was absolutely perplexed uh, about uh, white women's business and not standing up to men, you know, like overtly and taking your ground. I didn't grow up in that culture. Um, so... Yeah, that was interesting. I don't know, probably gone off tangent, but what... No, not at all. Um, and what I, I love is, of course, it's such a wonderful reminder that when we look to the women who've been trailblazers for us, they are, of course, trailblazing behind a whole other generation. Oh, absolutely, Larissa. I mean, I think that my... when I, I was just reflecting before of... Then when I think about... And, and I'm talking about now about 14, 15 years of age the women that I had the privilege of, um, you know, working with in terms of land rights were Cheryl Buchanan, um, you know, Graceland Smallwood, Henrietta Formile, uh, I knew Isabel Coe, uh, Jenny Munro, um, you know, as a, as a, as a young and um, involved. And the strong women that were in the Brisbane community 
uh, the elders that were there, like, um, oh, Auntie, there was an Aunty Jean Phillips, and, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to think of, uh, there was another Auntie, Auntie Maybury, and just a whole group of women who, um, and Auntie Eunice Watson, um, who were so kind and caring and um, helped, I guess, to shape the kind of politics that I um, became, the movement that I became a part of, which I had origins in because my grandparents were very political. Um, so I was acute because, all right, context. So my grandparents only had one pair of glasses when you're poor. Um, and they both couldn't see. So, and let me just say, one side was cracked, so there was really only one good lens. Uh, so my job every Sunday was to read the newspaper to them. Um, and so then I would witness the debate. So they would be, have discussions about Kennedy. They'd have, you know, discussions about Martin Luther King. Um, my grandmother was quite radical compared to my grandfather. He really thought that, you know, Martin Luther King was the right way, passive. She was very much... No. <laughs> um, no. And, you know, when the 67 referendum came, I was 11 at the time, and, and we had to walk in. So there's eight grandchildren. So everything, she's, she's washing by hand. She's fundamentally ironing with an old, you know, bloody uh, metho iron thing. And to get all us kids ready to go into town, because we always had to look respectable to vote was the slowest walk in that mile, because we lived a mile out of town, as most blacks who were put elsewhere were. So we're sort of going, and she is still on the way saying to my grandfather, they're not gonna change. Like, why you, why you, you have made me do this, clean them kids, iron everything, and they're not gonna change. What are we on? And he's on there going, oh, look, you know, we need to exercise our right to vote. You know, we've got to go, we've got to go through democracy. And she used to, she used to go, when she was disgusted, she used to go, you know, just, you know, and um, yeah, so she was, she was like, she was the fighter in that sense, um, very much, but very reserved. But, and uh, I've been told I sort of have her temper. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so my, they influenced and shaped me. And my grandfather gave me the Communist Manifesto and the Bible after I got kicked out of church when I was uh, 12 to read. And he said to me, like, these are white fellas' philosophy. You need to understand both of them. So, so my Sundays, my Sundays were sitting there reading, you know, this Communist Manifesto and the Bible, and then he would kind of talk to me about what I thought about both of them, and then I would kind of like do this thing going, well, look, I don't know really about Jesus, and I really don't know about these stories over here, and I'm thinking, you know, I really like this idea over about, you know, community controlled. I, I like that. I, you know, this is more like our mob. Like I, I sort of do this, and I, you know, now I think about it. You know, that was just normal in our house. It was normal to sort of have these these kind of discussions. So I, you know, and I, I did. I was very political at school. I'd do my own protest. Um, you know, I'd stand outside the door for six weeks. Wouldn't go inside. Do the lessons, and because I had a really high IQ. It didn't matter. Like, I'd go in and I'd, you know, that's right anyway. So it, 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 it um, yeah, I, I always believed that one should stand up 
where injustice prevails and I have been like that since as long as I can remember. Um, you know, and I actually still trying to fathom the human condition that seeks to oppress, persecute, um, hurt, you know, in this horrible way. And I, you know, I, I like, you just do. I get perplexed by that, I think, to myself. And when we think about what's happening at the moment in the Ukraine and what's happening in Africa, uh, you know, Yemen, I mean, Jesus, like, it's, it's almost unfathomable. And, and I think a lot of us shut it out, you know, and I was never taught to shut it out. It was basically always to be outward and worldly looking as I lived, you know, a mile out of town on Strabrack Island. Um, but yeah. I'll shut up now. No, you, we've, you are not to shut up during this I session. Know, That's not how it works. <laughs> um, th I guess one thing I just want to pick up it comes through in terms of how international your exposure to ideas was. But I remember the, trying to remember the first time I heard your name in that pantheon of great women that you uh, mentioned earlier was, a, was probably around the work that you did with FARA internationally. And this is, for people who don't know, was um, an Aboriginal organisation that did really the groundbreaking work um, at, at the mm. UN. And I wonder if you could share with us what it was that made you realise that that was the forum in which it was so important for us? Because this was before the declaration, you know, it was sort of taking our issues there, and not just as an advocate, but understanding the importance of those international conversations yeah. with other people, yeah. um, which has been a hallmark of your work since. Yeah, look, um, I was very fortunate in um, the, the, the Les Malza, Roy Tatton, uh, Shorty O'Neill, Mick Miller, um, you know, and Uncle Clary Grogan. I'm just now trying to think about who uh, who were around and at that time in uh, in the 70s was that we we could see that fundamentally, no matter what we did, either the Australian press would not shine a light on us, and if they did, it was always in a negative and derogatory way, and as if we had no rights. We had no right to actually voice the fact that we had rights. Um, and, and, and also that the government uh, wasn't really uh, operationalising its mandate, you know, despite the 67 referendum. So when Arakoon blew up, it was our opportunity, we, we seized the opportunity when the World Council of Churches came in to have a dialogue and to basically say, okay, we need to now be at the UN. We need to bring, you know, the rest of the world to see and at what's happening in Australia. You know, Australia was, you know, carrying on like a pork chop about, you know, it was anti-apartheid and we're going, hello, you set it up on the system in, in Queensland. Uh, um, you know, so, so this, the way in which Australia could basically continue to be this righteous and virtuous nation in the eyes of the world, um, when, when fundamentally there were cracks right in the, you know, in, 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 in the picture. Um, and so the, the international, um, allowed us to take our voice, but it also gave us perspective on what kind of politics were possible, um, which we 
uh, you know, anybody that basically hasn't travelled when you're basically, you can have a very isolated view of things. And to go to the UN and find out there were others, you know, in the similar boat. Um, so we instigated for um, changes, uh, which we ended up bringing back, like Farah did smash the axe in Queensland. Um, and uh, I, I think I mentioned to you before, like, we put this proposal to the United Nations and then the Queensland government wanted to charge us with treason because um, we, didn't, we didn't know that you have to run everything past government before it goes to the UN, so the government gets a chance to respond. So we, I just shipped it all off, and <laughs> which is <isn't> treason. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, and, and so, you know, they had this debate about whether or not they were going to, you know, charge us for treason and put us in jail. And, and we're like, oh, yeah, really? We are. Okay, go right ahead. Um, and I think that, um, you know, the kind of uh, strategic thinking that came out of the UN was really important. And the way in which we learnt to use the politics of embarrassment, <laughs> effectively. <laughs> There's so much in that anecdote that's so wonderful in terms of um, what we can learn in terms of advocating for issues today, particularly in the irreverence to what people say you can and can't do. Yeah. Um, I now want to um, just focus on this book. This is the um, US version of this book. Um, uh, talking up to the white woman, Indigenous women and feminism in Australia. Um, it came out of your doctoral thesis um, and it's been a highly influential book, being probably the most definitive account of the relationship between Aboriginal women and white feminism, and it's true to say that to this day, 20 years on. Yeah. What does it feel like for you to be marking the 20th anniversary of this book and what do you think has changed in that time or not changed? Look, I... Um I mean, it, it actually was an interesting... Uh, it was interesting for me that all of a sudden people wanted to hear about talking up to the white woman. And, you know, when you've written it 22 years before and, and didn't get a good reception, um, and then all of a sudden there's this interest. So I was curious, which is why I participate in things like this, because I'm fascinated by how white people respond. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, one is forever the anthropologist. Um, so I really think that I, I, I... So I was... I'm really interested, and I still am, as to why um, it is important. I, but, but given that I'd sort of become kind of like one of the key Indigenous scholars on race and whiteness, uh, studies and understanding, I guess, the context in terms of you know, the states, Canada, New Zealand, Hawaii, that um, I, I can see why. Like, it was before its time. And um, I didn't know that then, um, but I, you know, I, I can at least understand that now. Uh, I last... So I thought, I sort of thought that you might ask me a question like that. So last night, I thought I might have a look at the task force report that came out in 1986. It was the first actual national report on Indigenous women's business in this country. And uh, um, I then looked at the Women's Voice, which has been done by the Human Rights Commission. So what I was then looking at were the recommendations. So that's like, what, about 35 years apart. There was only two things that were different. Climate change and youth suicide. 
So they mimic each other fundamentally in terms of the recommendations over 35 years. Um, so if I want to talk about change, the fundamental change that's happened is that we have been incorporated further into the state's orbit, right? So native title has created another layer of government and turned our community organisations to some degree into another level of government, which they weren't when we basically were in the, in the 80s. And, and a lot of, because a lot of the activism came out of those community organisations. But what the state's done is over-regulated and also Clive Holding was one of the first ministers that basically threatened uh, the uh, Tasmanian Legal Service about the withholding funds if you were going to uh, be too political. So, you know, that sent a message that we really had to control our political activism, uh, otherwise funding would be cut. And I think that's impacted on our activism um, and the, the bureaucratisation of Indigenous, um, you know, service delivery in that sense has, um, I think, hindered our opposition. And I, you know, I hear a lot of uh, what's, you know, what's going on really on the ground in our communities really hasn't changed. We still have communities that don't have water. Like water has to be shipped out to Palm Island every year um, because, it, you know, despite the fact there's a dam, it's in a rain shadow, but the dam isn't, isn't taken care of properly by the you know, Queensland State Government. And so water has to be trucked in. This, like, we're still talking about this. We saw the, I, I don't know if most people looked at Four Corners last night, uh, you know, rheumatic heart condition. Still, my great-great-grandmother died of that, at, at, right? And uh, so to see these young women now, is, yeah, what am I going to say? Have things changed a lot? Mm. We've been incorporated into the state. That's my answer to you on that one. All right. Well, but, you know, you did mention that the book is ahead of its time, and when I've gone back and reread it, which I've done a couple of times, as I mentioned, since it was um, reissued, one of the things that strikes me that I guess I didn't notice at the time when I'd first read it because it wasn't even labelled this was that you actually described the concept of white privilege, which of course is now yeah. a term that we talk <coughs> about a lot. And I was just wondering um, for you, that's also been something you talk about how you are a leader in the area of whiteness studies, yeah. why that's been such an important intellectual project for you. Look, uh, one of the things that always perplexed me as even as a child and then, you know, later as an adult, was how white people didn't understand that they were racist, right? And also how white people didn't understand that they were raced. So, and even when I did intellect, you know, I took one, I took one subject at uni on race and ethnicity, and I kept going, but the focus here is all on the oppressed. You know, like, it's not on the oppressor. And these are, you know, you want to talk about it in terms of race relations, but really there's only blackness that's visible. And so, you know, so whiteness is actually invisible to those that are white. Like, not, 
you know, and a lot of that's tied to the way in which, you know, uh, Western culture inculcates the idea of the individual and that blackness is tied to race, you know, that they're not raced. Um, it, you know, it's, it's all of that. So I, I had, I'd nutted that out, I guess, in the book um, because I, it was something that actually challenged me intellectually um, and I wanted to provide a way for uh, basically white feminists to understand how racism works, you know? Um, and, and ironically, you sit there and go, look, and in particularly for, you know, uh, socialist feminists and, and, uh, and Marxist feminists, you go, you understand how capitalism talks to you about the relationship between the ruling class and the rest of you, and yet you don't seem to think that there's the ruling race and the rest of us. Um, you know, so, I mean, that's a very simplified thing, but I, what I'm trying to say is that I think that it was really important to pull that out and a lot of people didn't um, understand it and I'm not talking here and this is the other thing I really want to make clear this is not about saying white woman this is about saying it's a subject position that means it's a part of who you are it doesn't mean to say you know that it's all of you and it's about the way in which you interact with the other that part like, I don't know what it is to be a white woman in, a white, in your house. I can't embody that position. So all I'm trying to do, basically, in the book was to say, this is a subject position from which you act out of in relation to us, you know? And that needs to be changed, you know? And, and it's a power relation. And if you don't understand how that relation also has, it gains its power from its proximity to patriarchy, then you're blinded by your perceived oppression. You know, so I, I, um, I wanted to basically get those points out in the book, and I think I did. And look, to me, this was... I, you see, I didn't think it was enlightenment because this is... This come, that book comes from Aboriginal women, you know? This is, this is Aboriginal women's stuff. This is not Aileen Morton Robinson. I mean, all I did was put it together in a way in which it could pass in the academy and it could speak to people. But this is, this is Aboriginal women. And so I, so I find really, in talking about it, I, you know, because it's not me. Like, it's not my work. It's the work of all these other women. And uh, so I... I don't kind of invest it, I guess, with the same, you know, I, I get embarrassed because I think, well, that's, 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 this is the knowledge from Aboriginal women. It's their experiences. It's not just me. One thing you have to learn about Aunt is she's incredibly self-deprecating. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess one thing I, I just wanted to ask you then, that the, the panel is sort of, or the session is focused on the future. And I know you've made a reflection on how far we haven't come by putting yeah. those two reports side yeah. by side. But what is your most optimistic version of a future in this space between First Nations women and uh, the rest of the colony? 
See, I find that hard to answer. <laughs> and I do because, look, it took them centuries to get here. It's going to take centuries to unpack it. And, you know, the way that... The way that I've been taught about the future is, the future is the past. Like my, my grandparents would always say that it is the past that's in front of you. The future is behind you. You can't see what the future is, but you can always see what the past. And the past will always give you indicators for the future. So when I, what I would like to see, I guess, is Aboriginal women come together stronger. Like, we set up the Federation of Aboriginal Women in, I think it was 1980. Alexis Wright wrote, wrote the manifesto for it. We, we need to have, you know, take power as women. And I don't mean taking power as women on social media, you know, and giving opinionated pieces. I mean collectively taking power and working as a collective to bring about change. You know, I think that um, that is what's missing. There's a lot of people saying things, but there's not a lot of people doing things. Um, and as I said, there's still a lot to be done. You know, every social indicator, we're still down the bottom. Still down the bottom. You touched on something that I wanted to ask about, and I'm just going to flag, once I've uh, asked this question, I'm going to try the newfangled iPad <laughs> to get questions from the audience. So let's see how I go with that. So if you've got some questions, make sure you're sending them through, um, and hopefully I'll be able to work out how to read them. But um, let's... Hopefully I'll be able to answer them. <laughs> See, we've got hope. There's hope. Um, um, in hearing you speak, I'm really reminded of, you know, um, we are the old, world's oldest living culture. Yes. And there, I think there's more acknowledgement now that one of the reasons that's the case is because we understood how to live sustainably with the environment. Yep. <laughs> but I think less recognition is given to the fact that, yes, you have the world's oldest living culture because you know how to live with the environment, but you also have to know how you live with each other. And there's been a few things where you've spoken about in terms of the role of Aboriginal women within the Aboriginal community in a in a pre-colonialised um, structure without the influences, the misogynistic influences of um, colonisation. And I was just wondering from your perspective, you've touched on it a little bit, but um, in terms of um, improving, empowering, making space, um, allowing Aboriginal and First Nations women to just be, what do you see as the role of First Nations women in that project? I think the role of First Nation women in the project is what it's always been, and that is to basically maintain our culture and to maintain um, our communities, you know, and we do that. We're the backbone of every community organisation. It's women that are always there. It's women, you know, women have led struggles for land rights, women for native title rights. Women have been at the forefront. So I've, I've grown up in a community like that. And what I want to see more, though, is that kind of <clears throat> the way that women of my generation collectively work together. And that's what I'm trying to get at, is that I think that we need to get back to those ways of being, knowing and doing as Aboriginal women. I do think that... Um, there is also a place for leadership, women's leadership, you know, within government. Uh, we still, you know, we still don't have an office of Indigenous women in this country. Um, and Indigenous women's issues are not 
you know, taken care of by the Office of Women and Prime Minister and Cabinet. I decided to look that up last night. Six times the word Aboriginals uh, mentioned in the report and to government. And then, you know what it says, Larissa? Well, we need to, we need to, we need to do more research <laughs> on how we sort of engage with Aboriginal women. You just sit there and go, I could swear, but I'm not going to. It's like, you know, and, and so there, there's lots of ways, but I would like to see more of a national movement, right? National movement led by um, older women and those that are coming through, because our job is also not just to open opportunities and support, but it's also to, to tell you where you're going wrong. Right? That's part of my role. And, and, and it's part of older women's role, because that's how I learnt. I learnt not just, you know, a lot of the time, Aboriginal elders, women elders, wouldn't, wouldn't go, oh, Bob, that's really deadly. No, they didn't. It was like, you just get a nod. But you know what? If you did it wrong, <laughs> you got told. And you learnt. Like, I, I learnt about the kind of etiquette, so knowing my place in my community and, and in the broader community. Um, you know, do you know what it's like when you're like 22 years of age, you're sitting at a community meeting and Aunty Jean Phillips, and Frank Brennan comes, and Frank Brennan's talking about, and he's a lawyer, and Aunty Jean Phillips is going like this to me. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I'm like this going. <laughs> you know? And you're like, oh, oh, oh Father Frank. Um, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it, it, it's... It, it, so you got instructed and directed. And, um, and, and I learnt from that. And so I think that we have to get back to some of our cultural ways of knowing, being and doing and come together as women. Like, I would love a huge national conference on Indigenous women, and, and not about, you know, a particular topic. I mean, just bringing women together, and then we create that in that space, which is what we did with the Federation of Aboriginal Women, you know? And um, so I, I would... I think that the time's right for that. Uh, I think the time's right, too, for a, um, you know, an Indigenous... Uh, Female Academic Association as well in the academy. Um, there's, there's lots of things, uh, Larissa, I could suggest that we do, but I've got to be quiet. No, you don't. And first of all, I, I don't seem to be able to get the iPad to work, so hopefully someone can come on and fix this screen for me so I can get some questions. Um, I think there's a good audience of people that are probably wondering what they can do to help, and you're giving them a list of things to do. Um, but I guess just while we're waiting for me to work out the iPad, um, I guess this is a time where a lot of people are feeling a lot of anxiety. They're feeling anxiety because of um, COVID, changing world, uh, things like the changing geopolitical situation. Yep. Um, we've seen enormous shifts in, in how we understand the climate. Um, with your auntie hat on, your distinguished aunt hat on, what's your advice for people in terms of how they navigate this? Look, I mean... COVID, I think what COVID, instead of seeing COVID as negative, I think it's about, it, COVID gives us an opportunity to think about who we are as humans. It gives us the opportunity to slow down. It gives us the opportunity to think 
and love more with our families. You know, COVID, even though they're apart, I think what COVID has done to some degree is reminded us that we are in relationship with everything, right? And that is not something that we should, you know, say, oh, COVID's going to be finished and we can revert back to, because we really need to think about that in relation to the future. We, COVID is telling us, I guess, you know, for all the um, climate change that's occurred, we know that that's really bad human behaviour that's created it. And bad human, human behaviour has created COVID, right? So what, is that, what does that mean? You know, if these are the outcomes of bad human behaviour, what do we learn from that? And how do we not do it again? How do we, and how do we understand that COVID, that Mother Earth is talking to us through COVID? Mother Earth, it's so much quieter. The whales are singing and going stupid, right? Because of the inactivity of us on this planet, the slowing down of things. Um, I was, you know, I, all I could do was smile when I got the report that the dolphins were back in the canals in Venice, right? And why wouldn't they be? Because our nonsense had stopped, you know? And so how do we as humans understand ourselves beyond ourselves as the centre of things and the planet and to understand the planet as something that is alive? You know, it, it might blow everybody's heads, but if you just sit there and think... The build, this building is on something that's actually alive. And then you think, how would you feel? And then you think, oh, over here they're going to dig me up. Are they going to extract this out of me? And, you know, science, science wants to tell us it's got the answer for everything. And in some ways it's become a religion. But science can't answer everything. You know, we need to think differently as humans... We need to aspire to be different kinds of humans from the capitalist produced one that's occurred in the last couple of centuries, right? Like, we've got to change the focus. We really have to stop being self, so self-centred. We've got to become less possessive. We've got to become more caring, more sharing. We've got to take care of country, right? You all don't need a brand new mobile phone, right? You've got to think of your carbon footprint in terms of technology. You know, we're, we're blinded by the fact that technology is supposedly enabling us. Mm -hmm. What is it actually enabling us to do? And what is it doing for the planet? What's invisible about this energy use? I, um, these are the things that I sit and think about because I... I lived in a world that didn't have that, right? And I, I was raised on country to understand that it's alive. And one of the most telling things for me about Aboriginal people, when you go out into community, this is just, just we walk lightly on the land. I got asked once, did I do ballet? And I said, no, to this, she was a ballerina. I said, no, I don't. She said, oh my God, you walk like a dancer. You're so light on your feet. I said, that's because I'm very... Um, I was taught, basically, about placing my feet 
and my body and my weight on the earth, right? To have a consciousness of that. And so I don't step around, you know, like, um, you know, there's just differences in the way in which cultures talk and, and Indigenous cultures fundamentally are about being part of the earth. They're not about being separate from it. And so relationality is where we begin. It's the premise of who we are. You know, we can't know unless we're related. We are not who we are without being related to somebody. And, um, you know, that might be a good thing for white people to start thinking about. <laughs> like, who are you? Where do you come from? Who is your mob? How did you get to be here? You know? Like, how, how, how does that history unfold? And then maybe you'll understand when we say to you, you benefit from our dispossession every day. Right? You might, you might think you're a good white person and good luck, lovely, lovely, you know? My husband thinks he's a really good person. I keep telling him, he dis, you know, he benefits from the dispossession every day. You know, it's, it's like, how do you... And how do you then work to change that? It just... Yeah, because... Well, no, no. I'm just, this, it shows the wisdom of our elders that um, you anticipated a couple of questions that have come through, now that I know what they are. Um, and that was um, one about uh, acknowledging that white women need Indigenous wisdom right now from, from uh, Kristen, who asks what opportunities do people have, non-Indigenous people, white women, to learn more about uh, Indigenous perspectives and ways of being. And similarly, a question from Anonymous about uh, how do privileged white women practically support their Indigenous sisters in 2022? So I wonder if there were anything you wanted to add to that. Yeah, look, you can start with yourself, okay? Like, like don't get, don't, like, please don't run to help us, because, like... <laughs> you know... It's like... You know, you know, like, help yourself. Start with you. Start with your families. You know, like, it's, it's part of changing being that kind of human being. That's what I, you know, the message is on point. Fundamentally, you need to look at yourself, your relationship to your mob, what happened, how you got there, and then maybe come and talk to us, but don't come and damage us more, you know, by wanting to help us, you know, don't do that. Because, you know, it's like Foley says, we have missionaries, mercenaries, morons and misfits, that, right, that come, come to us. And it's true. And, and so it's not as though our lives are burdened already. Uh, we then got crazies that we have to. <laughs> and, you know, most black fellas take care of white fellas. They do. You know, sometimes you just go, oh, come on. You know, like, but it, 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 it's, it's a labour, right? It's a labour that you have to do when people are ignorant of their own white race privilege. Um, but, but it's, and it's laborious in the sense that you have to take care of them because they're on your country. And it's laborious in the sense that you've got to try and teach them, even though they don't want to know. You know, and it's laborious because you're standing there going, why the hell am I dealing with this person who's come to help? It's like, please go away. Um, yeah. no, I, I, that's, I do. I, I, I hide a lot. There are times when I've had white, white people come to help Farah and you'd find me in the toilet. <laughs> Because I'd have to sit in there because my temper would get the worst. I'd be sitting there going, you know, just let it go. 
you know, it's come on now, can't help it. Dougal can't help it. You know your grandmother would say, you know, they only got to live in one culture, poor things, and therefore you've got to think about the fact that you've got to take care of them because you've lived in more and you know about more. So you know what? You've got to just... She would. That's what she would say to us, and we, we got that. You don't have to feel sorry for them. You know, they're not real smart. <laughs> I'm just going to squeeze one more question in um, because it feels like a good question oh for our time. <laughs> and, and that is, um, you know, it, it's a question about you in terms of all the work you've done, how exhausting it is. And I think that's an observation a lot of women and First Nations women make about the endless work that they do, that it is very tiring and exhausting. How do you stay strong? I listen to the voices of my grandparents and my ancestors and my mum. I, I listen to that, um, and I, that's what keeps me going. Um, because the, the thing is, Larissa, we don't have really a choice. Uh, as my grandmother used to say, you know, when you always think that you've got it bad, there'll be another Aboriginal woman that's got it worse. And until it's sorted, you don't rest. So, because, and that, or the other part was that, because white people are not gonna do it for you, right? Only we can change this. And that we've gotta do that by sharing and caring and loving each other. So what, what keeps me strong, I guess, is the love, you know? And, um, and, that just keeps me going. And, and I know that the business is unfinished. So whilst ever I can, I will. What a wonderful note to finish on. Yeah. Um, I would just note that um, Distinguished Professor, Distinguished Aunt, Aileen Morton Robinson's book is available. We're not doing sit-down signings because of COVID, but if you are masked up and see Distinguished Aunt in the foyer, uh, you may ask her for an autograph. Um, and I know there were some really good questions that we didn't get to. My apologies for not working. They did give me a trial run and it just didn't work like this. Um, so my apologies for not getting to your questions if I didn't, but I'm sure she's very generous as you can see. If you can find her, if she's not hiding, um, I'm sure she'd be happy <laughs> to engage. I might. But please join me um, to, in thanking distinguished Professor Aileen Morton Robinson. Thank you. So welcome back to the second part of this session. I hope you had a good break, a bit of a stretch. Um, so we're going to continue the conversation of First Nations Women Speak to the Future. I'm still Larissa Berendt, um, but as I mentioned <laughs> earlier, I've had the uh, real privilege of being a co-curator of this festival. I've never done it before, but what I've realised you can do is put together some of the most amazing voices that you know that are out there and that people should hear. And so when I was putting this panel together, um, the names Chelsea Wadigo, Amy Maguire and Alison Whitaker were top of my list. Now, unfortunately, yes, I know, they'd be top of a lot of people's lists. Um, unfortunately, Alison has COVID, so she won't be joining us, but I will read a little poem from her at the end of the session so that we can still have her voice there. So I'm going to do a brief introduction to those of you who need her, to Chelsea Wadigo and Amy Maguire, um, and I'm going to keep those introductions really short so we can make the most of the, the session.
session. I'm just going to flag with Kate, I've already stuffed up the iPad somehow, so <laughs> she's going to have to come back on and fix that, but we'll do that now so that when we get to questions, <laughs> it might work a bit more smoothly. So let me just start with um, Professor Chelsea Wadigo. Um, I have to say, um, I think Chelsea's voice is one of the most important of our generation. Uh, her book, Another Day in the Colony, um, is groundbreaking and is must-read. Um, Chelsea knows this because I, I texted her about it, but when I first read it, I got a third of the way through and had the most cathartic cry which I think speaks to the fact that Chelsea's able to articulate experiences that many of us who've been doing the words thing for a long time still have not been able to do. Um, it's insightful, um, it's powerful, and is actually one of the best accounts of structural racism I've read. Um, Amy Maguire also, um, I've followed her work for a really long time, and, and like with Chelsea, I learn from Amy all the time. If you're not aware of Amy's work, you should be, because she is one of the best Indigenous First Nations journalists. She's one of the best journalists, full stop, yep. but she writes on Indigenous issues from a perspective that all Australians should be reading from. So when people say they don't know about these issues, I recommend you look at Amy Maguire's work. She, she looks at all of the issues that are important, but particularly looks at the impact of um, the criminal justice system and child protection systems on our family. And that is the most critical interface of colonialism with our families today, which is also, I think, really reflected in Chelsea's work. So I wanted to just give you um, a very personal introduction as to why I think these two voices are so important. And I'm going to begin um, in the proper way, which is to allow both of them to introduce themselves in their own terms, in their own ways, and give you, um, in a kinship way, um, some idea of their positioning and how they fit in with the rest of us. So I'll start with you, Professor Wadigo, oh, Chelsea. Go, Amy. No, it's you. <laughs> Who am I? Who are you? So my name is Chelsea Wadigo. Um, was Bond, that was my married name. Uh, I'm Mananjali and, and South Sea Islanders, the Williams and Wadigo and Slocky families. Um, and I'm a visitor to this place, so I want to acknowledge country in that way. Um, uh, my family uh, sort of stretched from northern New South Wales to north Queensland, uh, but home for me growing up was in the outer suburbs of Brisbane in a place called Runcorn. Um, and I'm the youngest of four kids to a black father and white mother. Um, and I don't know, what else do you want to know about me? Well, it's... I guess one thing would be good to know is what your main influences were. You've got a, obviously a very strong cultural social justice worldview, so what shaped that? I definitely think um, what shaped um, how I see the world is uh, the conversations that we had as, as kids at the kitchen table um, and whoever was sitting at that kitchen table at any given time. And I, I you know, as a parent um, with five kids, that kitchen table is so very important for us. Um, to have those conversations because I knew that our parents knew that when we would leave the house that we would encounter an, an imagining of us that didn't align with who we are as a people. And um, so I had this, the, the strong foundation was our kitchen table growing up in our home and this sense of knowing our place, knowing our place culturally, knowing our place politically and socially as well and in a way that we never accepted um, the inferiority um, that that continues to be imposed upon us. So we had this kind of, Dad used to always say like, you know, never bow your head, um, never think you're less than. 
at the same time, he would say, we might be better off than people, but you're never better than anyone. And so, and we were working poor, so I didn't get a sense that we were better off than anyone. <laughs> um, so it kind of always struck me as odd, but there was this sense of always um, knowing a place in, in a, a relational way, in a respectful way, not in a hierarchical sense. And um, I've just been very fortunate to um, encounter people who, um, and be surrounded by people that once I left the house, for work or um, in life generally, I've, I've found myself with people who share those similar values, that sense of knowing who we are and where we come from and working from that basis. Um, I certainly had a, I had to go to Sunday school growing up, so certainly there was a Christian kind of influence around social justice, um, which of course is contradictory to the church. But anyway, um, <laughs> but as a child growing up, I was always caught and I was always really annoyed by the contradictions, whether it was from um, Sunday school and what the church does um, to how mum got treated and how dad got treated. And so I was always curious about these contradictions, well, pissed off about the contradictions and outraged by it. And I refused to be quiet about it. And I was very fortunate, like dad was very, this big figure in our home and, and you know, as kids, you have to know your place too as kids. But he, I was the one kid that got to argue with him at the kitchen table. And I grew up reading the Courier Mail and debating the Courier Mail with him. And he, he pushed me to, to go at go him because um, he wanted me to be able to, to stand, stand on my own, own feet. And so I'm just grateful for that grounding um, that I could leave the house each day and never bow my head and never accept the idea that we're less than. Wonderful. Amy. Hello. Hi. Um, yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I'm Amy McGuire. Um, I was fortunate as well to grow up in my traditional country, Durrumbul country, up in Rockhampton in central Queensland, and I grew up there my whole life. Um, and I guess what really influenced me is that, you know, um, it was only later when, because I left Rocky when I was young, when I was about 17, to start a cadetship at the National Indigenous Times. That's actually where I first met Larissa. Um, but I think growing up, I felt like a lot of the truth of where I was li living, the stories on country, were very much concealed. And I think that's part of, obviously, the colonial project, the erasure of Black presence on Black lands. Um, and so for me, um, what has influenced me has been the stories, but particularly stories coming from country um, and stories told across the country, mostly told through the testimonies of black witnesses. Um, and the reason I talk about sort of that concealment um, is because it, it obviously had a purpose. But um, when I went back home, like a few years ago now, it was specifically um, to do a story that was based on country and Durumbal country. And it was only when I was back on country that I started to experience these signs that were leading me certain ways and to certain places that I hadn't seen before. And I realised that those signs were coming directly from country. It was like the ancestors were speaking to me. And that's when I started to sort of, and it seems like it's come a long time after when I first began, you know, writing about these issues. But um, I sort of realised what has influenced me has largely been um, black witnesses that I've been fortunate to meet in all types of contexts all across the country, but particularly in my own country. Um, and understanding that those stories were always there, but at the time I didn't have, you know, the understanding of the um, ability to see it in the way that I'm seeing it now. Mm -hmm. 
So I guess that's a really round way to say that I've just been um, really influenced by other mob, not just only on Durrumbul country, but all over across Aboriginal nations, all over across um, Australia. Um, and that's really informed what I'm doing today and where I'm hoping to go with a lot of my work. The purpose of the session is to be forward-looking, so I've actually asked Chelsea and Amy to maybe share some reflections just on that rather large theme of looking as First Nations women looking forward. And I did it um, open-ended in a, in, a, in a particular way, deliberately, because it's very easy at conferences like this to ask First Nations women to divine their future in relation to what that means with white feminism and the white woman's agenda. And I didn't want to do that at all. So I have asked them to more fully think about the things they'd like to, to speak to uh, so that we can really hear uh, First Nations women's perspective from an undefined position. Mm. So I'll start with you, Chelsea. You're up again first. Um, look, I, I, I guess um, the words of um, Dr. Anilla Watson, who's been a big influence on me intellectually, politically, and, and, and culturally, um, she talks about the, the need for us to be as forward-looking um, as we are, you know, for our future to be as long, uh, see our future as far ahead of us as the past behind us. And, you know, um, and I think we need to, but there, there are some challenges in that, in the sense that um, we're dealing with death on the daily, and, and it, you know, the events of Friday and and that verdict. Um, it, it's hard to think of a future at times when death is a daily thing, and when we're denied a future. Um, we've always been denied a future. I mean, we were deemed destined to die. Even the Australian Human Rights Commission's current national anti-racist framework positions as us as an ancient people, as a people of a past. And so on the one hand, there's this, we've been trapped in this, in a past place. Um, and so we've been denied that future. And so I, I know for mob at times, it's hard to think about the future when we're dealing with death all the time. Um, but the other challenge I think we're thinking about future is the way in which this idea of future is tied to this, 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 this idea of progress. And, um, and I struggle with, with um, how progress is used upon us in ways that aren't useful for us. So on the one hand, I think progress can be used to kind of maintain the status quo. You know, so we're told to, well, look how far you've come, as if, you know, we should settle for things as they are. Um, and that's not to disrespect the, the um, how far we have come as a people, um, but there is a danger in the discourse of progress around that. I think on the other side, this idea of progress as movement, as, as forward moving, um, it's only ever when we're in proximity to whiteness that we get to speak of progress. You know, it's the first black scholar to, to do this, the, the first black copper, the, the, the first black business. It's always framed in terms of our aspiring to whiteness, our, our becoming white and becoming successful on their terms. And so I think progress and future, there's a danger in the discourse around it in terms of what it tells us about ourselves. Um, you know, growing up in a working poor home in the outer suburbs, we were never raised to try and transcend our position. We were raised to refuse that location that they placed us in, but never to escape from it. Um, and so when I think of future, I think of a black future, not a future that um, where we become more like whitefellas or more like settlers, um, but a future that requires us 
to be in an ongoing fight. And I think that's really challenging for people to accept that our future is always going to be a fight. And because our future is about doing what those those before us have done for us, and that is to hold a front line in a war that's never ending. Um, so we may not advance, but to hold the line is something so important that we need to do as ancestors for those that come behind us. And it's hard work because you don't get the wins and you don't feel like we're moving, but to stand still, to still be here, to be sovereign, that is the winning in the settler colonial project. The refusal to forget, the refusal to um, concede, the, re the refusal to forget who we are. And so there's power in that, and we only get it, um, that, that black future is only predicated upon black collectives, because that's where our power lies. And you see any institution will disband the natives, disperse the natives, break up these black collectives, whether it's in schools, higher ed, um, health and social services, they'll, just, they'll mainstream us as a sign of progress and success. And because they know our power lies in, in the critical black masses. And it's in those, those spaces we get to theorise and strategize how to heal and fight at the same time. Because that's, that's, that's hard work. Um, so for me, a black future is in, is in black power, is in refusing to bow ahead and to, you know, hold our heads high and hold our fists high every day. I should just say, as a cheeky aside, I had a chat to Chelsea earlier and she said, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say. I just knew it was going to be good, whatever it was. <laughs> but I do just want to press you on one thing. Um, you know, you are a professor in, in the area of health, Indigenous health, and in fact, you are recreating a discipline around that. And I just wondered if you could share that work so that people can understand the depth of which you are actually in there at the coalface trying to change the positioning and the conversation. Yeah, so I have a day job uh, <laughs> doing the work. Um, so, uh, well, in terms of the Indigenous Health Humanities agenda, which Amy is also part of that collective, it is about building a, a, a black intellectual collective that un, um, that works towards survival in a local and global context. Um, and it's, it's interdisciplinary. It's about bringing the, the various tools that we need in order to do this kind of work. And one of the areas I think I'm most passionate about is around health justice. Um, we we hear about deaths in custody, but we're not hearing so much about deaths in the health system and mob being turned away from emergency rooms of preventable conditions. And now, as a health researcher, I wasn't trained how to fix that. As a health researcher, I was trained how to, um, you know, take blood pressure and blood sugar levels and, you know, um, quantify health behaviours as though it was somehow our fault. Um, but health justice brings together the political scientist, the race scholar, uh, the lawyer, um, and puts the intellectual work to work for legal and political purposes and so um, it's it's building an intellectual collective that is not of service to the academy though we're rating it for the tools that we need to do the work that mob have called us to do great it's really important work um, and you should follow be following that work because um, as I said Chelsea works very actively at the coalface and is engaged in a, um, a lot of big issues and really important cases as is Amy Maguire so this is a good chance to hand over to you Amy for you to share your thoughts um, yeah, I mean, I think I would just lead on to what um, lead on from what Chelsea was saying. You know, she mentioned that um, 
you know, the ongoing fight and the ongoing war. And I think we saw that most recently yesterday with the horrific decision that was handed down um, in the NT around um, the murder acquittal. And in the past couple of months, we've had two murder acquittals, um, Aboriginal woman JC and Geraldton, and then Mr Walker in the NT. But I was particularly struck yesterday um, by the comments made by Uncle Ned Hargraves um, outside the steps of the courthouse where, um, as Chelsea said, they called for a ceasefire. But also I was particularly struck by how he was putting forth different conceptions of what justice looks like outside of the white man's courts. Because as we know that we never see justice within the white man's system. We know that the justice system is part of this colonial apparatus. Um, and so he was calling for things like no guns in communities. He was calling for self-determination. He was calling for sovereignty. And so over the past couple of um, years, I've really just been thinking about about what justice means for us. What does black, just, black justice mean and what does it mean to fight for, for justice? And fundamentally, it looks so different to what they tell us justice should mean. Um, you know, we've seen my research areas specifically um, in media representations of violence against Aboriginal women. And that really came from working on stories in which Aboriginal women had died. Um, and just as I said in my introduction, there are actually stories that happened on my home country where I saw after it happened um, in the media, but then in the courts, the violence that had been inflicted upon them was reproduced again in media reportage. Um, and they were then disappeared. Um, and there was never any justice for them. Um, and in not only was there no justice, but there was enduring injustices. On one of the cases, um, which involved an Aboriginal woman named Linda, who was a very strong, smart, cultural woman who lost her lives in my um, home country alongside Tunaba, which is the river that runs through Rockhampton. Um, the Aboriginal man who was given a life sentence for um, her murder was actually, we found a great deal of evidence to show that he was innocent. The other story was a story around an Aboriginal woman who died in 1975 named Queenie Hart. Um, and the man, the white man who most likely committed that murder and left her on the same river um, on the banks of Tunaba had his charges dropped before any trial. Um, and so when I looked at these cases, I wondered how did we talk, how do we talk about these cases in ways we don't reproduce that continuing colonial violence, which you've talked about, Larissa, in relation to Eliza Fraser, how the, these media representations are in themselves violent and an ongoing um, colonial violence perpetrated against our women. And I realised that the answers of that in, lay in um, really not only the life stories of our women told by families and loved ones, um, but also the stories that are on country, um, the ways that we ensure that Aboriginal women are not disappeared, that we presence them in life. And I see that in so many cases that pop up in which, you know, Chelsea always talks about hope and that we shouldn't um, hope. And um, for me, that was a really important sort of mind-blowing thing to think about because I, I see even after... Um, you know, the murder acquittal in JC's trial, but the recent murder acquittal um, up in the territory, you know, Aboriginal people don't stop their fight. They don't stop their resistance. Instead, they formulate new strategies and always strategizing and always theorizing in ways that are not apparent to, for example, the academy or not visible to the mainstream media that, you know, these resistances are seen as violent, overly emotional, angry, irrational. Um, but I think the work is being done currently to make this violence incredibly visible, but also strategize to continue to fight against it. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm really pessimistic about um, things about, you know, the future and everything like that. But I just really encouraged 
particularly by the resistance, the continuing fighting and the agency that we always see, um, even amongst grief and amongst trauma. You know, there's just these amazing examples of strength, even following these horrific decisions, you know. Um, and the really tragic things is that, you know, they compound and they continue happening. You know, we're continually having deaths in custodies, um, continually seeing the violence um, inflicted upon Aboriginal women. Um, and we see no justice in the white traditional sense. So I'm really encouraged by the fact that I think um, so many blackfellas all around the country are finding new ways to articulate um, new forms of black justice in whatever, you know, ways they are and whatever tools that you're using to fight against it. There's so many different weapons um, that are being employed. And that's why I just wanted to pick up what Chelsea said about the ongoing, um, you know, war. Um, the way white media and white people see war um, is fundamentally different to the way that we're using the discourse of war. We're using the discourse of war against a continuing occupying force, whereas they see war as internal, black-on-black -black crime, which is the often um, what they charge us with when we talk about violence particularly. So, yeah, I'm just... Uh, for me, it's about coming up with new forms or new ways to articulate black justice um, in the continuing fight um, against this ongoing violence. One of the things I find extraordinary in, in the work that you both do is that you work at the coalface of really difficult issues and, and, and as you've both highlighted often it's about death and preventable death, unjust death and yet both of you work from what is a strengths-based approach. No victims, you're always celebrating the idea of sovereignty and placing Indigenous voice. Um, Having said that, I want to pick up on something that Amy said about the reaction to um, the verdict in the Kumanjai Walker case, which, in case you haven't picked up on this in the audience, has been something that I think has uh, pierced the heart of almost every First Nations person in the country in terms of what it means um, in a human sense, but also what it says in a symbolic sense. And I'd had the, um, the privilege of actually interviewing Amy, uh, interviewing Chelsea earlier in the week um, and she had said something about the concept of hope, which um, Amy had alluded to, um, and, and the lack of it and how to see it, which actually didn't help me process the emotion, but it helped me think intellectually different. And I wonder if, Chelsea, you could share your pessimism around hope, um, because I think it's actually a very powerful and enlightening construct. Yeah, look, um, fuck hope. Um, <laughs> I had to get one in there. Well, I know. Uh, <laughs> you see how, how Amy and I danced around it? <laughs> I was going to say it. Um, uh, and it's come... It is, it, it, that, that position that I arrived at with it, which other black fellas have arrived at it long before I did, you know, um, came through um, this idea that... Um, some of us have been raised with that if you just work hard enough, even if you're 10 times better, that we can transcend, um, that we can overcome. And um, there were just too many occasions where I'd been betrayed by this idea of hope. Um, and I've seen so many of the blackfellas brutalised by that betrayal. 
who, you know, worked longer as the teacher aide being, you know, treated like crap in the school for the love of community and the hope that the school would be a better place for those kids, even if they weren't their own kids. Or the health worker who suffered the daily indignities, or the black copper who's ought to be just hang in there in the hope that, that we can affect some change in this violent system that we're, you know, that we're, we're in. And I've just seen black fellas broken by it broken by hope and that does not mean that we give up we just change the strategy and our strategy for living cannot be bound up in the validation from settlers who who are here on the basis of not seeing us who refuse to see our humanity the number of criminal inquiries where you see families on the steps of coroner's courts um, talking about we want to be treated like human beings they see us as animals you know, I think about Ricky Dougie Hampson's family talking about this. I think about the um, Four Corners report and um, the auntie there talking about Doomagee Hospital saying they see us as animals. Um, and so I, I think we just have to accept that this is how things are. And if we accept that, then maybe we'll strategize differently in a way that preserves black bodies, black souls, black minds, um, so that when we go home at night, our kids can feel the strength and power of who we are as a people that we don't come home broken. Um, and so when I say fuck hope, it's followed with be sovereign. It's not that hope is all we have. Mm. If we remember who we are and where we come from, then, then we operate from power. And so it was that letting go of trying to, to, to buy into the lies that the settler tells us about what it means to, to be in this place, whether it's progress and all these things, and to operate on our terms. And it was, you know, the gift of um, Dr. Annie Lilla Watson, who, who in the course of writing the book really um, helped me remember who the fuck I was in a moment where I was fighting two race discrimination cases um, and where I was able to walk away from one because um, my dad used to always say when things would happen, he'd go, well, let him go, see what happens. Just let him go. And it was that kind of thing of, let him go. That's, their system's always going to be like that. They're showing us every time, every verdict, they're telling us who they are. Um, and that can't be the terms in which we know ourselves. Um, so some people get wild with me on, on the F Hope chapter. I think Patricia Collins on a train ride to Sydney was rousing me over it. Um, and because some people confuse hope and faith. I don't see them as the same thing, um, and I think that's because of my upbringing. Um, if you know who you are, you don't have to wait for someone to, for that moment to arrive, because you're in it all the time, irrespective of who they are and what they do. Mm. Yeah. I, did, I did find that a very empowering thing. Amy, one of the things that your work does so powerfully is you take the voices of people who have been silenced and marginalised and you give a space for them through your work and through providing, um, you know, a, a platform for people who, who aren't heard otherwise. And I wonder if you could share with us your reflections on the importance of, of, of storytelling uh, for First Nations women in this conversation, particularly because we have an audience that has at least come to listen to some powerful voices, and hopefully we need a lot more of that. But from your reflection, um, what's the importance of that and how can people engage with it? Um, yeah, I mean, as we know, Aboriginal women have been silenced um, since invasion. Um, and that played a purpose, obviously, because... Um, 
you know, our presence posed as a fundamental threat to the colony. Um, but even in ways that Aboriginal women are allowed to speak, we are still silenced. Um, so specifically, I've just seen, you know, over the course of just, you know, looking at so many different stories, particularly when it comes to violence, we are only allowed to speak about violence in certain, in very limited parameters, um, and usually in ways that um, obviously preserve, as Chelsea was saying before, you know, the status quo um, that, uh, you know, told through the discourse of pathologization where our men are seeing as inherently savage or criminal. Um, and so there are so many different silencing tactics that are enacted against Aboriginal women um, that, are in, that are in themselves violent. Um, and so for me, a lot of the um, work I've been doing is really around critiquing journalism as a whole because um, I'll just give an example, you know, after Black Lives Matter um, where you know, tragically, we saw we saw the bystander footage of George Floyd being murdered by a police officer, and we saw, you know, the momentum and the outrage pouring out from Australia, who were concerned about Black lives overseas, but not Black lives here. Um, I wrote a piece about that very issue for, um, like, my independent blog, Substack. Um, and it, you know, I, I got feedback from one journalist in particular who had been writing, and it was particularly about, you know, um, not talking about the cases like JC's case, like Mr. Walker's case. And I remember I got a um, message from one journalist who had reported on JC's case particularly. Um, and she thought it was to do about, you know, the lack of attention, the lack of writing, because she had written that story. So I went back and I looked at her story and I realised, well, actually, she had written a story, but by, by the standards of good journalism was a good story, but it still had the impact of silencing JC. It was told through the language of the courts that had criminalised her throughout her whole life in ways where the violence that had actually been inflicted upon her by the state was made invisible. And so she was seen as the criminal. And that's the logics that continued into the trial and which played a part in the murder acquittal. And so I realised that the mainstream media um, and I think we're seeing it with, you know, every single, you know, case around violence is that they are not ill-equipped to tell stories of colonial violence. So I started to think about the fact that we need a new way of doing journalism completely. You know, we don't have to continue to um, be framed by, you know, how they want to tell stories of us. Storytelling is incredibly powerful if we are able to do it in a sovereign way um, that involves... Um, prioritising the voices of black witnesses um, and not, you know, one of the big things I've realised is that, you know, particularly around Aboriginal women who are no longer here to speak for themselves, there's this idea that um, uh, we must humanise, um, you know, as a tactic against the silencing tactics. And I realise that in itself as a silencing tactic, it is to humanise. Um, is to make them seem as worthy of mourning um, that is most palatable to white people um, and the way white people see them as, as worthy. And so that's why I started to come up with, you know, new ways, sovereign black storytelling ways of um, telling these stories um, in ways that can be used as a weapon for communities. Um, because black journalism is not, um, it's not objective, it's not unbiased, but it, it has to be used in service of mob. It has to be used as a weapon rather than appealing to white media um, and abiding by the standards that, you know, good journalism is supposed to be. Um, so that's sort of where I am at the moment, you know, how black media can be used to push for um, black justice. Um, 
in the ways that we want to recognize it in. Sorry if that's like a total all around way of answering that question, but I've started to see like the mainstream media is totally, you know, complicit also, um, almost like a form, um, another colonial apparatus. Um, and so I see black media particularly as a resistance to um, mainstream media as well. That's a great answer. It reminds us too just that um, First Nations perspectives can be the best at critiquing what other people think of as normal, but also that our strategies um, can provide new ways of thinking about what outsiders can think of our intractable problems. But I just want to see if you wanted to add anything to that, Chelsea. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I just, you know, we only had to see how quickly Channel 7 and The Australian moved to, to render someone who was murdered as the violent perpetrator. Like, that was just so disgusting. As if Friday wasn't hard enough, mm. I, I can't imagine what it was like for the family to have, uh, have to, you know. And, you know, we all watched as family came out of the courtroom and spoke with such power and such strength and to suggest that he wasn't wanted the very next day. Like, I mean, when, when Amy talks about the violence of mainstream media, it's, it's not a metaphor. It is violent. Um, and... And, and the, the beauty of what, what blackfellas bring to this place is yeah, not just a kind of, you know, insisting on our humanity, um, but a way of doing that. And when you, you know, you read Amy's work, you feel the presence and the power of mob, even in the most tragic of circumstances. Um, and that's, that's, that's the important work that we do for each other, not for them, but for each other, mm. um, to remind us who we are, who we've always been in life and in death. Nicely said. And uh, I've just got test question here, so that's why I haven't been asking any other questions. Um, so apologies if, if um, you've put a question through. But I did actually ask um, Chelsea and Amy to perhaps just because we've been sort of celebrating the wisdom and words uh, of our, our First Nations women to just maybe read something of their work to share it with you. And Alison did send a poem through so we can read that at the end. But um, we might start with you, Amy, if that's okay, if you can share some of your writing with us. Um, sure, yeah. I was, in, I was tossing up between two um, pieces, but I think I'll just go because I, I think it has relevance to what we've been talking about today, and it was sort of the end of a piece I wrote a while ago um, around black witness, white witness, um, and it was specifically around, um, you know, the horrific comments made by Joe Hildebrand and Kerri-Ann Kennelly a while ago. Um, but I'll just, I'll just read the ending. Um, when white witnesses such as Hildebrand and Kennelly speak of violence in Aboriginal communities, they are talking about a certain space in Aboriginal Australia, and that space is remote communities. After all, it is not often an Australian journalist is a war correspondent in their own country. In order to define their fictional war, they must set up their own borders or retrace the spatial boundaries enacted by force during colonisation. Citing David Goldberg, Canadian academic Shereen Razak writes about the spatial configurations of colonial societies and how racial categories have been spatialized. In the Canadian context, but which we, we could equally apply to Australia, he wrote, colonizers at first claim the land of the colonizers as their own through a process of violent eviction, justified by notions that the land was empty or populated by peoples who have to be saved and civilized. In the colonial era, such overt racist ideologies and their accompanying spatial practices facilitate the nearly absolute geographical separation of the colonizer and the colonized. 
When the white witnesses of the mainstream media speak on violence, they are talking about the violence that exists in this space, in the space of the colonised. This space is black space. It is a space where violence is routine, where the rapes of Aboriginal women and children, as Kennelly puts it, are normalised and so become zones of degeneracy. They are the others who cannot speak, but who can be spoken of and who are in need of saving. Because they live in these spaces, their bodies are marked. Because they live in these spaces, their bodies are marked by, their, by this otherness and the judicial and media responses are shaped by their race, class and geography. The most disturbing element of the white witnesses' testimony is that it can be a form of violence. This form of violence can have real material effects and we saw it most pertinently in the form of the Northern Territory intervention. But it also has a reality in the silences, the absences in the news columns and broadcasts around the country where Aboriginal women are killed or go missing. Having been identified with what has been marked as a violent space, they are seen as disposable and the violence perpetrated against them is portrayed as inevitable. In comparison, those who live in white spaces live in zones of normality, where the same social problems, namely violence against women and children, are not seen as the defining characteristics of the people who inhabit them. This is where this fear comes from. The Melbourne CBD is seen as safe, respectable white space, despite it being on unceded Aboriginal lands. And so a protest of tens of thousands of Australians, black and white, rallying to recognise the true bloody history of this country is perceived as threatening. These protesters are hard to comprehend, for a white Australia so accustomed to designating ab Aboriginal affairs to the outback, to use Kennelly's words. How can black fellows be so articulate, so vocal, resistance and hardworking when the images they know of black Australia are of welfare dependency, of violence, of child rape, of battered women? In order to divert the gaze from this resistance, these white witnesses claim that these protesters are not the real black Australia. Instead, attempts are either made to dilute their Aboriginality or to claim they simply do not care and are thus the enablers of violent men and silences of Aboriginal women and children. In the words of the white witness, the real black Australia exists out there in the borderlands, and so deficit language is used to secure the confines of that space. Aboriginal people in remote communities are either victims or perpetrators. They are never afforded any complexity despite the diversity of histories, languages, cultures and traditions. Remote communities are also denied their own voice, including their own right of protest, even though some of the most significant actions in history took place in remote Australia. Where would we be without the Gurindji walk-off at Wave Hill or the Pilbara, Pilbara strike? By confining a fake concerns to the borderlands, the white witness not only positions themselves as the only credible witness, they enact their own forms of violence um, on the people that they claim to speak for. Um, imagine if any other Australian community were defined as a war zone and its people as warring, dysfunctional and rapists over a long period of time. Imagine that you then tell them your protest means nothing. You should care about the real issues, the fact that your women and children are being raped, when these women and children are, their, are your cousins, aunties or friends. Hildebrand and Kennelly are not alone in their characterisation of our communities. They are simply the latest in a long line of white witnesses, the witnesses of trove, of parliament, of anthropology, of breakfast television. As white witnesses, their testimony, however inaccurate, however violent, holds power. But it is crucial to recenter the voice of the black witness. Like the white witness, the black witness also uses the language of war. While the white witness uses it to stage an attack, the black witness will mount a defence because it is not the white witness's war they want to talk about. It is the real war, the continuing resistance against an occupying force. We use this language to raise our young people and elders as resistance fighters and warriors in ways that do not victimise but instead instill strength. Our communities are not war zones of killing, but epicenters of survival. 
Our women are not helpless, but on the front lines of battle, and our children are not the objects of neglect, but the very reason for fighting in the first place. While the white witness thrives on accounts of the brutalization of black bodies, most commonly of black women and children, the black witness pushes these same black women to the forefront. They are the ones with the micro megaphones in the center of the Melbourne CBD, in the very heart of white respectable space. While the white witness uses the language of war to disconnect us from our past, the black witness uses it to connect our past to the present. And that is the power right there. Now we're close to time, so I just want to give you a chance to read something of your okay, work. Sure. And I'll just say, as, as Chelsea's opening her book, she's not reading from Another Day in the Colony, which if you don't have, you'll be purchasing uh, after this. Again, there's no signing, but if you see Chelsea, I'm sure she'll be happy to give you a little signature if you're masked. And if you have a question, I'm sure she's, as you can see, she's very generous, so uh, she may be up for a bit of a chat. Sure. Right. Okay, I'll read fast, hey? Oh, take your time. Um, so I'm reading from uh, essay I wrote for Seven Stages of Grieving. Um, shout out to Shari, Wesley, Deb Malman, and Elaine Crumby. Um, the beauty of black death and black lives. I know grief. I know the grief of loss, a loss that arrives for us all, death. I remember my dad died. It was a beautiful time. Us kids had all returned to the family home in the days leading up to his passing as adults sleeping on the floor of the lounge room, the floor that we had laid on, played on, and fought on watching TV every night. Never then we could have imagined our return to it as adults with kids of our own. The floor felt harder as we slept on it between our rotating shifts through the night, sitting with our dying father, reading the Bible to him with a steady voice that disguised the pain of hearing his laboured breathing. And I say it was a beautiful time because we were there together on our terms in our family home, a place of safety and comfort and, most importantly, a place of belonging. On the night he passed, we all said goodbye and we laid his bed next to Mum's and we told him he could go. We left the room and within minutes he left us. And we felt him go and, strangely, we felt an overwhelming sense of love and peace wash over our home. We sat up and told stories about him as he laid there and we laughed and cried over memories of a man whose body was before us and it was a beautiful time. We were relieved he was no longer in pain. We were grateful for the gift of a father that loved us and provided for us, and we felt fortunate to have had, had, had him live to the age of 62 years. We knew as an Aboriginal man he had already cheated death in his living. While Dad's death was something that was peaceful and beautiful, the grieving was something different. And I remember the weeks after his funeral when we were required to return to a world that had decided it was time to move on, insisting that we pick up the usual pace. And I remember being angry that the world had seemed to have forgotten him, or at least our loss of him. I was resentful of the unspoken expectation that 14 days was sufficient enough time for getting over grief and that I should return to all of the insignificant shit I'd been given a free pass on. But eventually I did, and I learnt how to live without my dad as though that was a normal fact of life. Maybe it's an acceptance that all life must come to an end that I was able to move on from my grief. But there's another grief of loss that I struggle to live with, even though and perhaps because I'm required to accept it as a normal fact of life. It is the grief of loss visited upon blackfellas. You see, settler colonialism offers a whole different kind of grief. Grief from a loss not of lo only of loved ones, but of land and an entire way of living. It is a suffocating loss, an unjust, traumatic kind of loss because of how violently it is visited upon us. Settler colonialism represents a never-ending kind of loss because the settlers are never, ever going home. In our grief, we cannot return to our home that we once knew for the same sense of belonging and any sense of gratitude in our grieving, too, is unimaginable. Settler colonialism generates a grief that is unrelenting because the loss itself is repeated. Each new policy era heralds a new articulation of black dispossession for a new generation dressed up as benevolence or worse, reconciliation. 
Our grief neither heals nor leaves. It accrues, accumulating like interest, though no one is getting paid. There is no will, no assets to speak of because the rent was never paid. Each generation instead is straddled with a greater debt, a greater burden of a greater grief, of a greater loss. It is in its everydayness that we afforded no grace periods, no grieving time, not even 14 days. It's kids to school, parents to work and safe for communities. It's been the mantra of the state for at least a decade now, a policy articulation of the everyday racist assertion of get over it. And all this time, they haven't closed gaps, they've simply tracked our deaths. They've walked over bridges not to reconcile, but to move us on from their shameful deeds. But their shame is our grief, and their presence marks our loss every day. Thank you. Well, I, we're so over time, I haven't Sorry. got time to do justice to Alison's poet, poetry, but I will just take one little line from her which says, resilience is no buzzword, which <laughs> seems like a great um, comment to finish on. Um, you can uh, read her poetry in her books, Black Work and Lemons in the Chicken Wire. Um, so can you just join me please in thanking so much Amy <laughs> McGuire and Chelsea Watergay. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for turning out to listen. Obviously, that's the first part. Enjoy the rest of the festival. And just a bit of a shout out, Ask an Auntie will be on. And of course, if you want to keep asking questions, there's three great aunties who you can ask anything to. So engage with a little <laughs> bit more Indigenous knowledge. Okay, thank yeah, you. Thank you. Watch this talk and others at All About Women 2022 on stream. The new streaming service from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching. Follow the Sydney Opera House on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.